You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. It's an inconvenient truth. Although many of the world-changing people who inspire us the most, from the likes of Florence Nightingale to William Wilberforce, or Mother Teresa to Desmond Tutu, have themselves been inspired to give their lives to build something better by the words of the Bible, It's also the case that through the centuries, its words have been used to justify some of the most inhumane and repressive episodes in human history. Just for example, its text has sanctioned crusades, inquisitions, and the torture of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people of other faiths. It was used to denounce Copernicus and Galileo, and their breakthrough in the understanding of the cosmos. It's been drummed into the service of arguments that have portrayed African people as cursed by God and therefore used to justify the enslavement of millions as well as to legitimise apartheid. And still today, it's referenced to condone the death penalty, to keep women subservient to men, to incite Islamophobia, to insist on a young earth, anti-scientific, six-day understanding of creation, to oppress the LGBT community, to abuse the environment, and to endorse various other forms of prejudice, abuse, deception, and cruelty. That's a fairly extraordinary record for a tome which is often referred to as the good book. So, this time next week, Rob Trickey, who's part of Oasis Church Bath, is going to tackle the big question of why the Old Testament contains so much material which, on the face of it, depicts God as fierce, wrathful, violent and vengeful. Why it so often reports God as supportive of a justice regime that's oppressive and discriminatory. And why examples of this same kind of teaching are still there on occasions in the New Testament. Because if we're going to build something better together, these questions are really important. The Bible is, after all, the church's foundational text. So, It's only as we face up to the challenge these texts pose, rather than sticking our head in the sand and pretending that the questions don't exist, that we'll ever be able to find meaningful answers to the big issues facing the church today and tomorrow, let alone leave the generations who come beyond us with the raw materials that they will need to confront the issues ahead of them and still serve the God of the Bible. This week, therefore, I want to pave the way for what Rob has to say by asking, what is the Bible? Does it paint an accurate picture of God at all? What do we do with all its awkward and unpalatable bits? In what sense can it, does it provide us with a reliable moral guide to our 21st century century society? How do we read it? all authentically, honestly, and consistently? Or should we just pick a mix, pick the bits we like and dump the bits we don't like? And if so, does this really have any integrity? So let's get started by me reading to you just two Bible passages. The first from Leviticus chapter 21. 
it explains this. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron the priest, for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer food to his God. No man who's blind or lame or disfigured or deformed or with a crippled foot or a hand or any eye defect or has any festering or running sores or damaged testicles can approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. The question is, how inclusive is this approach to disability? Or some verses from the New Testament. The writer of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, wants to put the issue of women's leadership beyond all doubt. He points out that a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women can be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Does this author's writing really reflect God's view of the status and the role of women in church life and wider society. We've all heard preachers imply that every single syllable of the Bible is literal objective truth and that it's applicable as today, as applicable today as when it was first penned. At the same time, however, in spite of 2 Timothy's proclamation that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, many Christians, let alone anyone else, sometimes wonder if large chunks of it might best be consigned to a filing cabinet labelled no longer relevant. And if that shocks you, take Jesus's own attitude to it. Even as he claimed to be committed to bringing the full meaning of the Old Testament to the surface, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. At the same time, he's famous for his numerous challenges to its actual text. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you that. Jesus used this well-known formula first to quote from the Old Testament law and then to radically reinterpret or, to be blunt, in some cases, completely rewrite it. Indeed, it was his deliberately renegade attitude to these and many other Old Testament laws and teachings that increasingly got under the skin of Israel's religious teachers. They just didn't like the way he chose to ignore all their time-honoured interpretations. As far as they were concerned, Jesus' views, along with his whole way of life, was blasphemous, were blasphemous and heretical. But I don't think that Jesus was rejecting bits of the Bible. I believe he was doing something really quite different, deeper than that. He was dismissing immature, oversimplified and legalistic understandings and applications of some of its culturally conditioned ancient texts. So how do we read the Bible, the whole Bible, authentically, honestly and consistently? Back to that question. It's a very common error, but hugely misleading to think of the Bible as a book. It's not. 
It's actually a library. In fact, the word Bible literally means the books. And if you open a copy, there just inside the front cover is a list of the books of the Bible, the books of the library. The Bible is, in reality, a complex collection of historical documents written, written, edited, and compiled over the course of at least one and a half thousand years, and representing all sorts of literary genres, worldviews, languages, cultures, agendas, and opinions. So, although we refer to it as our sacred text, it's far more accurately a collection of texts which have become sacred to the Church and it's best read, understood, and acted on in that context, because any text out of context is a pretext for anything. And as you enter into this sacred library, you discover that, just like all libraries, it contains various, sometimes harmonious, sometimes discordant, and sometimes even contradictory voices. Yes, there are contradictions between the books of the Bible, but that makes sense once you understand that it's a library of books, not one book. The personalities, politics, prejudices, social understandings, and the cultural settings of its writers all play a part in their thinking and their writing, their books. The Bible's most faithfully engaged in by understanding that it is a collection of books written by fallible human beings whose work, at one and the same time, bears all the hallmarks of the limitations and preconceptions of the times and the cultures in which they live, but also of the transformational experience of their encounters with the living God and the developing story of humanity's moral and spiritual imagination, which as generations pass, is slowly being stretched and always enlarged. So the idea that the whole thing is infallible, as sometimes people say, that it was somehow dictated word for word to its human authors by God without any error or contradiction is to say the very least extremely misleading. And it only serves to send the world the chilling message that this text must be blindly accepted without challenge. Because of course, in truth, there's nothing in the biblical text that's beyond debate and questioning. And what's more, healthy churches are ones that create, deliberately create, an environment which welcomes just that. Ultimately, however, Christian faith is not about a library of books, about the Bible at all, but it's about a person, the person Jesus, who uh, those like me have chosen to follow and have come to believe that he is the full revelation of God, just as a whole number of biblical writers who are, of course, the source of our knowledge about Jesus in the first place, themselves make clear. And if that's true, then we're called to live by the example, the character and the teaching of Christ as set out in the Gospels as our guide and our primary lens, not only for all our biblical interpretation, but also as the basis of the whole way we have of doing life. So, just one last thing. Biblical interpretation is therefore not finished. The Bible does not provide the final answer to a whole number of moral issues with which today's society has got to wrestle. 
Rather, this is the ongoing open-ended task of all those who take the Bible's text seriously and count it as authoritative. How, for instance, is it that Wilberforce came to the view that slavery was wrong, even though some of the verses, the actual words in black and white of the Bible, clearly have a different view? The Old Testament not only endorses slave-keeping and trading, but it sets out terms and conditions for its practice. And although the New Testament proposes a more humane form of slave-keeping and no longer supports slave-trading at all, it still fails to deliver a clear-cut protest against slavery. So what guided Wilberforce and the abolitionists wasn't isolated Bible verses Instead, it was their understanding of the deeper resonance and the direction of the journey of the whole of the biblical narrative. And this, of course, was centred on the example of Jesus, who was their compass for all of this recalibration. Well, that's it. Although I know that what I've said thus far will only raise lots, lots more important questions. However, like I often say, perhaps a sermon should be regarded as worthwhile, not because everyone in the congregation agrees with the preacher, but because when it's finished, those who've heard it just can't wait to talk about it, to discuss it, to debate it, and even to disagree with it. Why? Because it's only by thinking all this through together that we can build something better.